Hey, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Um, let me begin by just, I was thinking about Father's Day, and God was gracious and kind to, to me in giving me a father who uh, loved us well and showed up for us and sacrificed a lot for us, and um, and so I'm so thankful for, for my dad and for what he means to, to me and to, to so many. Um, and then I was thinking also just about, and so let me just say this, if your dad showed up for you, and like we, we live in a culture that is very critical, and so if your dad showed up for you and he was, he was there and he did his best, like just, just take it easy on him and be, and be thankful to God for that, right? Because we live in a culture, uh, a fatherless epidemic is occurring where, uh, millions upon millions of, of, of kiddos are being raised in homes that do not have that at all. And so as imperfect as maybe your dad was, which of course he was, that's a given, of course. That's, that's a part of, of, of why we're here this morning because we recognize our need for a perfect heavenly father because we are all so flawed and imperfect. But um, we recognize the the need for, for fathers, for men to, to, to step into the lives of, of kids, um, whether it's their own or even kids that maybe, you know, I know there are kids in my life, in our neighborhood, uh, who need some of the men in this room, uh, to come alongside them and to father them and to care for them and to love them and to model for them the love that the, the, their heavenly father has for them as well. And so let me just encourage you, fathers, if you're showing up for your kids, continue showing up for your kids, but also be aware of the kids in your life uh, who would love for you to come alongside and to encourage them and to be that father figure that maybe they don't have. Um, on the other side of that, I think about, again, our need for our Heavenly Father. And uh, the reason we pray to God is because, number one, Jesus taught us how to pray, say it with me, our Father, but also when we read like passages like Revelation chapter four and Revelation chapter five, we also see that we not only have this approachable father, but that father also happens to be a really mighty, very powerful king. And so when we read Revelation four and five, we kind of combine the two. Yes, he's approachable, but also we are to have this reverence because he is capable of doing whatever he wants to do. And so we come to him in awe and reverence as well, not only in like the tender, loving care of a father, which is good, but also we approach him with a reverence and a holiness, understanding, you know, what he's capable of. And so that's why we pray, because he is both, and he, 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 he reveals himself to us in both ways. And so we can be confident that he's not only a good father, but also a father who is capable. And so let's do that this morning. Let's pray together uh, with and for each other. How can we be in prayer alongside each other and be praising God alongside each other as well this week? Who's first? And then church, I would invite you to open your Bible to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. That's where we're going to be this morning. Why don't we stand together and read God's word? This is a way to honor it as we get into the passage this morning. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. It says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the reading of God's word. You can be seated, church. Let me pray for us. Father, each week as we turn to your word, which we believe it is your word, as we turn to the Bible, uh, we pray what we know not yet, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us for your glory? Amen. I want to begin by giving us just a little bit of context as to where we're going this morning and just frame it out by using two words, real simply. I just want to use two words for us to consider. And those two words would be gain and loss. Gain and loss. At this point in his letter, Paul is, is, is reiterating for the Philippians that their religious credentials get them nowhere, okay? And that no matter how buttoned up they are, their righteousness is not a righteousness of their own, but of God's. He's just reminding them of this. And he talks about it in terms of the temptation that we all have to sort of live our lives building up a resume, a, 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 a resume that looks different for each of us, but this resume is, is gained as we work for it. In other words, he's just simply saying, like, you, you, can't, you can't work for this. You can't earn this. We talk about that every week in this church. So nothing really new to us that you just simply cannot earn your own righteousness. It is a righteousness that is imputed to you or given to you by Jesus. Yes. Um, but for the Apostle Paul, his concern here is that, 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 their, that, that their propensity and their trajectory is going to be that they, that they fall back into to, to working for trying to earn their salvation, to gain reputation, to, to gain accolades, because we all like a good reputation. We all would like to be known you know, by our accolades, to gain spiritual pedigree, to gain moral status, and even to gain a life that appears put together and self-dependent and strong and motivated and successful. Sound familiar, right? That's like everything that the world is telling you you need to pursue and do. That's what Paul is saying. Be, be careful of that. Like that message is, is not salvific. It's not going to help you in the long run. 
And I would say the church in America has been accused of a lot of things in recent years. Some are very true, some not so much, but this one is true, that we tend to work hard to, to ensure that we're being perceived as or that we um, appear as though we, we have gained or that we are succeeding or that we are very buttoned up again and put together, that we have it figured out. As we're going to see here, Paul lists all that he was, all that he had gained, and then he pivots and he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. In other words, everything I thought I had gained, everything I had built up means nothing apart from knowing Christ. That's what Paul says. That's the question that we wrestle with and the sole concern of Paul. Do, do, we, do we know him? Do we know him or do we know what it is that we are trying to work towards? Is that what we are most acclimated with? Like my own pursuits, my own abilities, or do we know him? A British theologian, J.I. Packer, uh, he's one of the giants of the faith who passed away several years ago and his really his best known book it's called Knowing God sold millions of copies he says this he says you sum up the whole of the new testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father he goes on to say if you want to judge how well a person understands christianity Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, Everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption, of knowing him, that we get to know him and that he knows us. And so Paul is going to urge the Philippians to be uniquely Christian in the practice of their faith in the working out of their faith. And in doing so, unlike other religions of that day, he is going to say, here is how. Here's how you do it. You want to be uniquely Christian. Here's how you do it. You count it all as rubbish compared to knowing God. That's it. That's how you can be uniquely Christian. Verses one through three, he begins, and he starts with this language, uh, this, this language of circumcision and circumcision of the heart. And again, he says, um, in verse two, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so this passage begins with a reminder it begins with a reminder. Um, evidently, there were some false teachers that had infiltrated the church, and he calls them dogs. And he calls them evildoers. And Paul wanted to make sure that people knew how to handle them, right? These, 
these, these dogs were, were professing Jewish Christians who taught that you still needed to keep the law in order to be saved. Now, ironically here, dogs was a, was a, was a prejudiced term that Jews actually called Gentiles um, that were unclean, and Paul uses it in reference to Jews who still wanted to circumcise as a, salvation, as a sign of salvation, right? So he kind of flips the script on them. Um, notice how Paul responds. We, we, he says, rather, are the circumcision, which means that true believers have been circumcised in their hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, until that happens, until the circumcision of the heart happens, you are still unclean, meaning you are still a dog, is the way he uses it. See, you, 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 you've learned something this morning already, that evangelism strategies have changed a bit. Um, and that's okay. Like, what worked for Paul doesn't have to work for us. I would highly encourage you to not call your unbelieving neighbor a dog. But if there is one thing we know to be true about Christianity, church, and I want you to hear this, it's that your rituals do not redeem you. Your rituals do not redeem you. Only Jesus can do that. And the implications of this should be unbelievably liberating for you. Here is why. You can now spend time living for Christ and less time proving yourself to Christ. You can now spend more time loving God and less time trying to make God love you. You can now spend more time serving and loving your neighbors and less time viewing your neighbors as those who just simply need to be converted. Why? Because it is Jesus who does the circumcision of the heart, not you. It's not something you can do. And so the Judaizers were so quick, were, were so quick to go, let's get them in here and carve them up because they believed that that was something they could accomplish to, as, a, as a sign of salvation, whereas Paul says, no, only the Holy Spirit can circumcise the heart. And so it's liberating to you and to me because we cannot do that. Only God can. Paul says, you do not need a new body. What you really need is a new heart. I don't believe we struggle with the same sort of religious temptations. I don't think, I don't think we would all agree that we don't struggle with the same sort of religious temptations than we even did 20 years ago. And in the evangelical church, and certainly, of course, not in Paul's day and what he was addressing here. So, for example, most of us don't believe that works or outward spiritual rituals and routines save us. Would you agree? Yeah, I think most of us go, yeah, duh. That's like Christianity 101. Again, we hear it hopefully here every single week. Here is what I am finding, though. It is much more subtle for us than it was for the Judaizers. And while we may not struggle with this kind of religious temptation to be circumcised or to hold on to every law like with a white-knuckle grip, it, it does look like a religion of, again, put-togetherness. Or maybe even a religion of like dealing with the guilt complex that I have kind of in my mind and heart every single day. Let me explain, like this ongoing guilt dialogue with yourself. Did I say the right thing? Did I say enough? Did I say too little? Am I being perceived as spiritual? Am I viewed as a Christ follower? Does God see me as good? I need to read my Bible more. I feel far from God right now. Lots of this language you've probably used and you hear often. 
Am I a good enough spouse? Am I a good enough father? I cussed last night. I cussed a lot last night. I cussed on my way to church this morning. I cussed in my head at church. I don't know how much of this stuff I really believe, and I'm just simply not willing to admit it. I need to love God more. I feel dirty. I feel sinful most of the time. A lot of that, you're like, yes, I can relate with a lot of those things. And if any of that is you, your soul is ripe for gospel revival, and it's an indication that you need to ask God to help you in your unbelief, that the gospel of grace, of the grace of God covers all of that. That's the radical nature of the gospel, covers all of that. Because none of those things have any bearing whatsoever on your adoption or on your salvation. Listen, it's important for us to see the difference here. Your sanctification, much of what I just listed above, will be stunted if you mistake it with your salvation. Your sanctification will flourish only, only when you have truly rested in and settled the internal debate that, you're, that you are accepted unconditionally by God based on one condition, what Christ has done for you. And then you work from that place, you don't work for that place. You work from that position, not for that position. You don't work for your salvation, you work from it. You love God because he first loved you. But I will say this again, if you do not get that first, you will white knuckle your faith until your last day and you will never feel like you did enough along the way and it will be exhausting. Paul is reminding the Philippians that religion minus Jesus is no religion at all. It's morality, it's behavior modification. In verses four through six, we see Paul build this case for himself, and he does so by essentially saying, like, if anyone has the right to be confident in his spiritual pedigree and credentials, it is me. Verses four through six, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, he says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He kind of gives his pedigree, his credentials. Right ritual, circumcised on the eighth day, right race, an Israelite. Right family, the tribe of Benjamin. Right religion, Hebrew of Hebrews. Right occupation, a Pharisee. Right zeal, a persecutor of the church. Right morality, outwardly keeping all of God's commands. That's what it says. If you aren't impressed right now, because when you read it, you're like, well, I don't even know half that really means. It's just because you are not a Jew living in the first century. Paul was a Jewish blue blood. He was as in as you could be in in the first century. What more could you want? Now let's just stop there for a minute. That is the whole entire point of this entire passage. What more 
could you want if you were to phrase it in the form of a question? If being religious could get you to heaven, then Paul was in. I often get the comment, um, like, Judd, could you say a little prayer for me? You're, you're on the inside. Have you ever received one of those? It just says a Christ follower. And it drives me nuts. It makes me cringe. Because the only one on the inside is Christ. I couldn't believe that more. And Jesus opens the door into the presence of God no more for me than he does for you because he who knew no sin became a sin offering that you might become the righteousness of God. That's not me. I was not that sin offering. That's what Paul is saying. Paul's concern, though, was that the people would stop there and go no further. That they would look at their spiritual resume and figure, it's not too bad, maybe... It's not as good as Paul's, but it's surely good enough to kind of sneak into heaven, and that logic couldn't be more anti-gospel. What Paul is trying to do here is relieve them of wasted time and energy working for salvation. He's trying to liberate them. Again, the, the Philippians already knew they already had the cerebral capacity to understand this stuff. Sola Christus, Christ alone. They'll go, yep, that's the gospel we responded to. Paul is just trying to make sure they don't add anything to it. You cannot add one single thing. And here's my list of things, and I'd love to add one of them, but I can't add any of it. It's all rubbish. So, verses 7 and 8, as we begin to wrap up, he summarizes, and he says this, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, in other words, uh, like, let me say it again, let me say it again, and again, and again, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, whatever I get gain I had, all, all my credentials, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Here's my question. We sort of go... Um, if we're to be honest, in those moments of real vulnerable confession, we sort of go, um, that's great for Paul because, because he lived in pretty brutal conditions. And so, of course, he's going to say like things like, you know, to die is gain. Well, of course, because he believed the gospel and he lived in brutal conditions and he was imprisoned constantly and beaten and shipwrecked and In, in that moment, we must admit, I think, that there's so much in the world that, that draws my, my attention and my affections away from Christ. Um, and that draws me away from being able to say with the Apostle Paul, everything is loss as compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Christ. 
That's a beautiful sentiment. But if I'm honest, it's like, that's just not true. Right? There's so much that captures my my heart and my attention and my affection more than Christ does. I mean, life is good for many of us. And I think the answer when we feel that tension within us, where we want to confess it, go, yeah, it's just not, I'm not there, I'm not where Paul, I'm not where Paul was. The answer and the solution to get into that place of understanding is actually found in one word. It's in a really important word here that we need to see. And it's the word suffering. It's the word suffering. He said, for I have suffered. And then in verse 10, that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him. Um, there's a missionary named Amy Carmichael who was an Irish missionary to India in the 19th century who, if you read her bio, you'll see she endured more suffering than one could imagine to bear in one life. She wrote these words, We say then to anyone who is under trial... Give him time to steep the soul in his eternal truth. Go into the open air, look up into the depths of the sky, or out upon the wilderness of the sea, or on the strength of the hills that is his also. Or if bound in the body, go forth in the spirit. Spirit is not bound. Give him time and... And as surely as dawn follows night, there will break upon the heart a sense of certainty that cannot be shaken. In other words, if you desire this sort of certainty that Paul has in knowing God, then in times of sadness, church, in times of suffering, you must not firstly find comforts in the material, but rather steep your soul in the eternal. That's what he's saying. We are so quick to find a solution, a salve, an out, a comfort, apart from him. And as Amy Carmichael says, look up into the heavens in those moments. Remember your spirit cannot be bound. And when you do, you will sense the presence of God and be able to say with Paul, I have lost everything, but it's okay. I have gained God. What more could I need? As we wrap up in verse, verses 9 through 11, again, Paul ends with this crescendo. And he says, when I gain him, when I gain him, I am then found in him. That's where he wants to be found. I want to be found in Christ. I want you to stick with this and see the ending here. My righteousness depends on him, he says. This is verses 9, 10, and 11, summarized. I can be found in him. My righteousness depends on him. I can know him. The power of the resurrection comes from him, and I can endure suffering because of him. That's where he lands. Paul expresses the goal of his life in these verses, that I may be found in him. In other words, that he would be my Lord, 
that he would be my Lord, that I would surrender my life, even if, it, even if it means giving up my life. Even if it means suffering the entirety of my life. For the sake of being found in him, it's worth it. Paul just doesn't care. You, you've noticed that? He just doesn't care. And it's so frustrating again to the authorities in, the, in his day because they didn't know what to do with the guy. But he just doesn't care because he cares so very much about Jesus. Listen, to follow God the way Paul is following God and trusting Christ here means to trust in him entirely. And trusting him isn't offering up your suggestion on how you'd like your life to go, and then when it doesn't go, you no longer follow him. If that's you, you're seeking a consultant, not a Lord. To follow, trust, and obey means that even when he doesn't make sense to you, you still follow him and trust him. Because, well, he is God. He is not a consultant. This is what it means to stand in awe of God. And we can often treat God so microscopically and pragmatically and practically. We think we can, we can and should be able to alter who he is and what he stands for. And then when we pull back and think about his power that spoke all of this into existence and controls every molecule at any given time, that's the God that Paul knew and the God that Paul says, I want to be found in him. That's where I want to be found. That's where I want to be. Parents, your kids will be so bored of God if you don't paint that picture for them. They will want to be found in anything else other than the puny God we depict if we do not continuously blow open their minds to the magnitude of who it is we are dealing with here. Paul wants to live in such a way that when the end comes, he will be found in that God. Where can you be found? If most of us were to be honest, we can be found in many places, but maybe not often enough in him. We can be found in fear. We can be found in anxiety. We can be found in insecurity and jealousy. We can be found in comparison. We can be found in chasing success and accolades. We can be found in being busybodies. We can be found in doing and saying all the right things. We can be found apathetic towards God. We can be found apathetic towards others. We can be found hiding like Adam. We can be found running like Jonah. And so my prayer as we continue through this letter, because it's so rich in just gospel truth and pointing us to the location where we want to be found, is that we would just step back and take a look at our lives, all the graces, all the gifts, all the goodness, all the joy, and yes, all the sufferings, all the grief, all the pain, all the trials, and everything in between, and that we would truly be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I just want to be found in him. He is my gain. If I have him, I have it all. That's true. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we, as we meditate again, just continuously every week on the Apostle Paul's words, we, 
we, we, we really see a, a liberated man. We see a free man. We see a joyful man. We see a grace-filled man, a man that I want to become more like. But ultimately, I want to become more like the man that this man points me to. That I would be able to say and feel there are things that I once treasured that become garbage or rubbish compared to knowing you and the joy that I can have in you. That the old stuff that used to consume me would no longer would even amuse me. If only I may be found in the presence of my king. This is our prayer. This is our prayer. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen, amen, and amen. Let's stand together and let's worship.